For many, the term Ozarks drums up summers at the lake, but it's actually a much larger region with a deep history. And for James Beard semifinalist Rob Connolly, it was the inspiration for his restaurant Bull Rush. So what is Ozark cuisine? Well, we dive deep into that question with Chef Connolly. It's a question he continues to still research and execute in his kitchen each night. Because Rob doesn't do anything halfway, it took a bit longer than expected to open his restaurant in Midtown after he moved back to his hometown of St. Louis from New Mexico. But he wanted to get it right. The same goes for his goals of zero waste. Composting, he says, is not the answer, and they look every day for ways to use every single scrap. The conversation we had on this week's podcast bounces around from 100-year-old cookbooks to foraging to where the inspiration for his dishes comes from. So let's get right to it and let's meet Rob. Well, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Of course. We're sitting here in the restaurant. You guys are just coming off of a little break. Talk to me about, as a chef, why sometimes it's needed to sort of step back and give yourself and your staff a little break. Uh, You know, I think that regardless of the type of restaurant, you need a break just for the physical and mental health of the the staff. Uh, For a restaurant like this and any of the other fine dining restaurants or uh, what I would consider non-production-based restaurants, meaning you're doing more artistry possibly, uh, you need it for the creativity. I mean, I can't tell you how how many ideas were generated just by sitting in a car for six days of driving, plus the downtime when I finally got to where I was going. Um, We came back and it's a 100% brand new menu now. We've made some major changes to our bar concept. Uh, Just, you you need the downtime because if you don't have empty space in your head, Mm -hmm. it can't be filled. Absolutely. What are some things that people can look forward to then with this new menu? Well, the, there's a few things. The menu itself is fun because um, the seasons have changed, even since December. Mm-hmm. And we work so heavily with forage and local farmers that uh, this time of year is the scary time. Because if you didn't plan ahead, there's not much to serve. And so uh, we're, we're looking at things that would have been preserved. Uh, some of the root vegetables that are still available, uh, but we're really focused now on using the techniques that that my staff and I have been playing with for the past nine months, which is um, curing meats, uh, misos, koji. Koji is a term not everyone knows, but we're super heavy into that. We, we're hoping to be um, the leader, certainly in the city, if not the Midwest, um, on the use of koji. And, and tell people what that is. Well, it's it's a fungus, and not like the t- fungus between your toes. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a fungus that has been used for a long time in Japan. Um, in America, not so much, but you, all of the listeners will know it because it's necessary for miso, it's mm-hmm. necessary for tempeh, um, sake. You know, all those things have have koji as the source of making the flavors come to life in those Mm. ingredients. Why was that something that intrigued you? Well, because as a chef, you're always looking for something new, right? I Mm -hmm. mean, you can go into any restaurant that claims uh, local sourcing in this town. And right now I can tell you what they're having because we all get the same things from the same farmers. And so how do you, one, differentiate yourself? And two, how do you motivate the staff and yourself to be creative and keep things fresh? Mm -hmm. You know, you're going to get... 
I don't know, this time of year, butternut squash is still going, sweet potatoes, uh, rutabagas, turnips, all those root vegetables. Well, we're all doing the same purees, the same roasts, the same uh, frieds, but what if it's koji inoculated mm. and it creates a whole new flavor, a whole new texture? That's a lot more interesting. And so the thing is, you can't say, I'm going to do koji and have it for tomorrow night's service. It's you something have to that plan takes time. Ahead. And so we've been doing it since before we opened, even. And, um, you know, one of our favorite ingredients that we made back in April when we opened was our acorn miso. We have that in a number of dishes, mm -hmm. and it's because it's delicious. Uh, anyone who's familiar with miso knows it's kind of earthy, umami, salty. Uh, but the acorn one, wow, it's, it's got a cool flavor. And my favorite use right now is it's going into um, a dark chocolate ganache filling for wow. my macaron, my, my macaron cookie. <laughs> so it's a dark chocolate acorn macaron. Uh, it, it's delicious. And you talk about, I mean, there's a lot of planning that goes into your menu. And you had a ton of planning and research that went into this restaurant well before you opened. Can you kind of walk us through that process? Yeah, I, I geeked out more than I ever <laughs> dreamed I was going to. Like, you know, I'm a chef. I'm here to cook food. Mm -hmm. I'm here to serve customers. I'm here to run a business. Um, but normally when people take a regional cuisine, whether it's Appalachian or Tex-Mex or whatever, the, almost always, if you look, they will have gone to their grandmother's recipes mm. for inspiration. Mm -hmm. Well, that's interesting. Um, but ultimately, I'm trying to answer what is Ozark cuisine? And if I go to people's grandmas, and my, my grandmas are both past, but what is Ozark cuisine? They're going to say casseroles and jello salads and, you know, maybe fried bologna sliders. And that just doesn't ring as Ozark to me. That rings as Midwest. Mm -hmm. And so I said, well, let's look a little older then. And so I started finding church cookbooks from the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. And there I would see the same thing. Mm -hmm. Turns out there's a, a couple here in Missouri that wrote a book on the history of Missouri cookbooks. Oh, These are one fun. of these things I discovered in the <laughs> research. And in there, there were two companies that produced those church cookbooks. And they said, well, you give us your recipes, we'll add them to ours, we'll print it, sell it to you, you sell it as a fundraiser, all the way back into the 20s. Wow. What that just told me is there's recipes in those books that aren't authentic to the area mm -hmm. because they're doing this all over the country. Right. So that sent me down to Springfield to the public library. They have a historic cookbook collection. That got me cookbooks to just at the very beginning of the 20th century. That wasn't very interesting because I'm seeing squirrel casserole and possum fritters. And well, through the research I learned, that's really marketed to the tourists because mm -hmm. that all goes to Harold Bell's book, The Shepherd of the Hills, which is what launched Branson as a nationally known location. Mm -hmm. Interesting, but it's not to answering the question, what is Ozark cuisine? And no one can answer this. And so they send me down to Fayetteville, to the University of Arkansas. They have a rare book collection. They have an Ozark section of the rare book collection. The meat and potatoes of that is this whole back to the land movement. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if you were ready for this whole academic discussion. I'm ready for it. Did you want me to just, <laughs> do, I could just t talk about hamburgers if you want. No, no, no. <laughs> but what we do here at Bull Rush is there's so much depth to it right now and it keeps going. So I get to University of Arkansas and this back to the land movement are the hippies from the late 60s, early 70s who are protesting um, 
the the uh, Vietnam War and they're protesting by getting away from society. Okay. Not protesting with a, a placard or, you know, walking up and down streets, but they're getting away and hiding in the woods. Not hiding. Um, Taking a step back. They're stepping back from society, which has really alienated them. Mm-hmm. So in there, they're talking to the old timers and saying, what, how did you survive here in the Ozarks, which is pretty undeveloped still, mm-hmm. even in 1970. And they're getting this wisdom of the, the ancients or, you know, this knowledge that you can't just pick up. So you got to do the math here. Those folks are 70, 80, 90 years old in 1970. Okay. That means they were so born they're... 1900, 1890, 1880. And they remember their parents and probably their grandparents and maybe a generation before. So that puts us 1860, 1850. Now we've got some really old knowledge that's been transferred second hand mm-hmm. versus third or fourth or fifth hand. So that was all interesting. But then they sent me to Little Rock, to okay. the university, or to uh, the Little Rock Public Library System, Central Library. And there's a, a center called the Butler Center, and that is the Ozark Collection. Ozarks are one-third Missouri, two-thirds Arkansas. So Some people might not realize that. When they think Ozark, so many people are just simply going to think Branson. R Ozark, you know, the lakes. <laughs> Lake of the you Ozarks. Know. Well, it also has a little tidbit of Oklahoma and Kansas. Mm. Uh, so there's even more to it than that. But those are small, small parts. I get to Arkansas, and this is where everything exploded for us. It did not see it coming. I just went saying, hey, I'm looking for old cookbooks from the Ozarks, from anything pre-1900. And there was one book called uh, Chakor's Help for the Homekeeper. I want to say it's 1873. Not the most useful book, but it is really interesting because it is known as the oldest Ozark cookbook to exist. Wow. Very few copies are out there. But then they started showing me the manuscripts. By manuscripts, I mean handwritten letters, family journals. The oldest we've laid our hands on so far is 1820. A wow. bunch of them from the 1830s, 1840s, and on. And in there, they're not writing recipes. Dear future chefs who want <laughs> to get this, this information, here's how we survived in the recipes. They didn't have recipes back then. We saw almost no recipes until after 1843. Why? Baking powders introduced. Before oh. 1843, how do you cook the meat? Hmm. You throw it in a pot, you throw it on the fire. Right. How do you cook the plants? You boil them or you eat them fresh. You don't need a recipe for these right. things. But we introduced baking powder, and now that what we called corn pone, P-O-N-E, mm-hmm. which is the predecessor to corn bread. Okay. Now we have, so corn pone is corn mush fried in a, a skillet, normally with fat. Okay. Once we have and it's not the most enjoyable thing. No. Okay. <laughs> because it's hard okay. and dense. But now we have corn or uh, baking powder. We add that to the corn pone. It puffs up. It's light and fresh. It's cakey in the center. It's crisp on the outside. You still cook it the same in hot oil in the cast iron skillet. But now it's easier to eat. But now we have to give people instructions. We have recipes. It's not that there weren't no recipes, but it was just that very it wasn't. few. So you're, you're looking at things that have been utilized for 200 years almost. How does that then transfer to a restaurant here in 2020? Well, so it all goes back to what is Ozark cuisine? And I don't think we can ever answer that in a detailed scientific way other than saying it's the food and foodways of the Ozark Plateau. The Ozarks, by the way, are a plateau. It's a geographic region. 
To us, what's more interesting is capturing these stories, the human being, the individual, the family, the community, and retelling their story, giving their story a new voice 150 to 200 years later. And so the only way we can do that, if I served you the food from that time as it's described, mm -hmm. you would not enjoy it. It wouldn't be as flavorful. No, our, our palates have changed. You know, you don't want tough, charred meat. You want delicate, juicy meat, cooked sous vide. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, so what we do here is we have modern knowledge of cooking fashion and cooking technique. And we take these old ideas and we give them a new life using our language, which is the modern cooking technique. So one of my goals for 2020 is be even more solid in saying, here's the letter that we found from 1831 and what it says, and here's how we've translated it and the outcome. Um, I sort of have a vision of being able to show people the document and then the recipe oh. with a picture of the dish. It sounds like a cookbook, right? I'm, I, I, don't, <laughs> I don't know that I want to go back to doing another cookbook because I've done it once right. and it's a lot of work. But it, logically, like my brain needs to have it the sort of visual together. side by side. Yeah, I need to have it come together. Well, and so, and that's kind of the, the really unique place, the unique position you guys have here is that you do have the ability to have people come in, sit at the bar, try some of your food, you know, maybe before a show, but then really to fully immerse themselves in what you're offering is that taste it menu. Yeah, and, and we're very much focused on get everything out on social media. Um, you know, most restaurants say, here's our daily special. For us, it's here's what we found at the archive today, <laughs> because I want this period of history and this geography that isn't paid much attention, or worse, it's often disparaged, mm -hmm. to get its day in the sun. Yeah, I mean, how do you hope to really change the way that people around the country view the food here in our area and not have them sort of think of it as casseroles and gelatin, as you mentioned before. Yeah, we, we have to do it by treating the dishes that we create and the drinks that we create with a lot of care. Um, I can't put something out that someone's gonna come in and say, oh, well, that's nice. My grandma makes that. No, 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 no. <laughs> it needs to be completely 2020 focused. It can't be even 2018 focused in my mind. We've gotta stay ahead of the curve, not from St. Louis's curve, but the nation's curve. What are people doing in the major food cities, New York, L.A., Chicago, San Francisco? And we have to keep up with that standard. Otherwise, we can very quickly fall backwards and it becomes too familiar. Is that a challenge for trying to bring those things that maybe are more well-known, more popular on the coast and maybe aren't as familiar here and, and getting people to come in and say, yeah, I'm ready for that? So <laughs> it's it's been my professional career um, ball and chain, you know, I, because my spouse always says, you're an artist, not a chef. Mm. I, I kind of cast that aside because I'm just making food and it needs to be good. It doesn't need to be beautiful. It doesn't need to be, it just needs to be good and it needs to satisfy you and make you want more. Um, so <laughs> when I create these things though, uh, I get bored very quickly mm. and I have to push hard to make sure that I stay up on what's current around the world and certainly what's in the city. And by doing that, it scares some people off. The people who want the smash burger, which I love my smash burgers, <laughs> and the people who want the toasted ravioli. Um, well, let's, let me put it another way. I don't give you a menu till the end of the meal. 
Okay. And I, and why I, is that? Because if you look at the menu, you'll say, well, what is that? I don't want that. Mm -hmm. And so let me give you a little anecdote. We share this all the time because it was the most amazing, beautiful thing that's happened since we've opened. This guy came in with his grandson. He was 92, 93. They, they said at the beginning of the meal, he was lifelong Ozark. He's born and raised there. He's never left there. He was in town visiting the grandson. And so this was early on before we opened. We didn't know if we were going to be any good or not. Mm -hmm. You know, you think you're going to, but you right. never know. You never know. And this old timer from the Ozarks says that. I'm like, oh, man, here we go. This is going to be. <laughs> Pressure's the, on. This is the first customer who's going to say this isn't Ozark food because it's not the way we think of it in contemporary standards. So we get through the meal, seven or eight courses. And he calls me over to where he's sitting. And I'm, I'm ready to take the, the beating. <laughs> and he said, I didn't recognize a single thing you just served me. So, of course, my heart dropped. Right. He paused and they said, but every course reminded me of my childhood. Oh. Like, oh, my God. That is exactly what we're going for. That's what you're here for. And, and we do that with every course. It's like, I don't want you to recognize it. Because if you can make it at home then why go out? You mm. can go out because you're lazy, you don't have time, whatever. But I hate going to restaurants where I can make it better than they know. made it. Now, did you go to culinary school? Did you teach yourself? What's your background in, in learning how to do all this? Yeah, I'm self-taught. So self um, I'm a dismet kid. Let's okay. just cut to the chase. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't actually ask that question as often as I should on this podcast. Are you not okay. from St. Louis? I oh, am, yeah, actually. You're, from the, you're on the other side of the I, river, right? No, I'm from here. I went to Ladue, so just a little bit down the road. You, Spent some mixers at uh, DeSmet Middle School, so yes. <laughs> so so I, I, I'm a DeSmet kid, and I went off to uh, Loyola, New Orleans for my undergrad. Got okay. my doctorate from Purdue. The doctorate's in sports psych. Has nothing to do with anything. Interesting. And then um, I had 18 years of nonprofit management that I did. So I used to run a, a variety of nonprofits. I used to do the big grants, the big federal grants. Mm -hmm. uh, became my specialty. My last one is the one that took me to New Mexico, and um, there are two nonprofits I worked for there. The second one was running a meth treatment program. Okay. Great work, rewarding work, and it burned me out. After 18 years of writing grants, anyone who writes grants will understand what I'm saying. I was just tired, mm -hmm. tired of chasing grants, tired of having to move because the money dried up and you had to chase a new grant. And so... Uh, my spouse and I loved where we were, and we said, well, what can we do to stay here? Mm -hmm. And so we opened a business, and they always say, do what you know and what you love. Well, what we knew and know, knew <laughs> and, <laughs> and still love is food, and, and so we opened a gourmet international grocery. And what made you love New Mexico? What made you say, this is where we kind of want to put down some roots right now? So you're asking me, me this <laughs> on a day in January right. <laughs> where it's 18 degrees outside, and um, you know, I love winter. I like pretty winter more right. than yeah. <laughs> more This than is the worst part of winter, winter right now, I feel uh, like. So it, it really was. The, it, I like small town. My family's all from St. Genevieve. Okay. And um, a lot of my dad's side's Florissant, but my mom's side is all St. Gen. And, and so I like that small town feel. I like where everyone knows your name and everyone knows your business. Even if you don't know what you're doing, they do. They do. <laughs> and I, I love that feeling. And where I was in New Mexico was like that. It was a town of 8,000. And we all knew each other um, and looked out for each other. And because it was so remote, um, even though we had very different political views, I was in a ranching mining community. Mm. And here I am, this 
ultra-liberal, Jesuit-educated person. Um, we all got along because you're isolated. You have to. You can't create enemies when you're isolated in a small town. Like, mm -hmm. I'm not going to that drugstore because they have a different political view than me. No. You you're, mean, my, you're my neighbor and I need the drugs. Mm -hmm. I, I shouldn't say that yeah. since I just said I ran a meth treatment program. So I need my prescription. Prescriptions. There you go. <laughs> and, and so we just loved it there. Um, but ultimately, it was time to come back to family right. and back to the place that I know and love, which is St. Louis. I mean, how, was that a hard decision? Was it no. an easy decision? It, it was an easy decision. I'd run the restaurant at that point, I think, eight or nine years. So coming up on a decade. And I think the lifespan of any creative restaurant fizzles about then. Mm -hmm. I, if you push it any further, it just becomes drudgery, right? I mean, I have to be creative again, and you can't. You just can't do it within the concept. That's why there's always people reconcepting. Mm -hmm. um, it's different if you're pushing out burgers, and that's not to disparage burger joints. They do that well. But when you're trying to create something new constantly, every week, every month, every night, uh, you can't do that forever. So you came back here, and did you know right away what you wanted to do in terms of opening a restaurant, or how did that sort of thought process work? Well, I knew I wanted it to evolve from my last place. I knew that I'm not a production chef, meaning pump out a lot of food. I'm a, a tasting menu type chef, um, and I knew I wanted the food of my childhood except... I couldn't serve the food of my childhood. You know, you can see how that then evolved to the Ozark mm -hmm. and the, this work we've been doing. Um, but I didn't really know. Things really solidified when I met Justin Bell, who's been my sous chef for almost three years now, mm -hmm. or maybe it's past three years. He reached out to me and said, hey, let's go foraging together. I heard you forage. And I, I thought that's great because I didn't know Midwest foraged. I'd been gone so long. I've only foraged in the Southwest. And for people who don't know what foraging is, can it's, you kind of describe it? Yeah, you go out in the woods and gather ingredients. Simple um, as that. Yeah, it really is that simple, although don't just go do that. <laughs> <laughs> get some education, get a mentor, which there are plenty of people who would love to help out with that. But we find fields and forests. We go to parks. We, we mostly try to stay on private land that we've been given access to. Mm -hmm and we gather ingredients, come back and cook them. Uh, things like acorns, mushrooms, uh, I, I don't know. We, we have like 75 things we've gathered over the past three years, so it's quite a list. And when I met him, that's when I realized the potential of what we could do, because in New Mexico, I was a one-person show in the kitchen. Okay. In a traditional kitchen where I was in the back and my server was out front, and even back then, though, I realized I can't just serve food to people I don't know. It just doesn't work for me as a person. Okay. Um, and so I would come out with every dessert so I could say, thank you so much for coming in. Here's your dessert. And get feedback. Even if the feedback is just the body language. Right. You just want to kind of see I that even, experience yeah. and, and really you, watch them even kind of consume or had consumed your food. Because, you know, I mean, here we call it Midwest nice, but it's it's everywhere. People say, oh, it's great. Yeah. So you, you can hear it in you their voice. You can see it. Like, mm, okay so I need to work on that course mm -hmm. and that constant feedback that so many chefs either don't want or don't get you know the server will bring the plate of food and throw it right in the trash and the chef never sees it mm. I can't have that it's not acceptable from so many levels one my motivation two food waste you know so let's anyway we'll so, get to food waste in a little bit because I do want to talk to you about that so um, coming here I wanted to evolve the concept and as the Ozark thing started to develop in my head, I knew I wanted a tasty menu. 
the layout of the room was crystal clear to me. I wanted a room where I'm cooking right in front of the guests. I want it to be as much of a cooking class as a uh, interactive, hey, you're sitting across the counter from me in my kitchen and talking to me through the whole dinner to a more uh, haughty educational experience. We don't get too much into that, but we do a little bit. You know, I want you to know why I'm serving you what I'm serving you. Do people ask a lot of questions? Yes. And, And I'll tell you what, the people who don't, I'm sure they have a very different experience. And some mm. people, you know, they're on dates, they're on, they're shy, they're whatever. Or maybe um, they don't even know they can. They so don't know they can. Because if you no. come, well, and that's what happens. We see, we do groups of eight, you know, two, it'll be four, two, four groups of two or whatever that mm-hmm. come up. And the eight people, if everyone's quiet, no one is willing to talk. And right. normally that's when I say to the staff, okay, turn up the music a little, <laughs> pour the drinks a little heavier because let's get them in, engaged because that's what this is all about. Well, and that's one of the fun things about doing a tasty menu especially is when you're in a situation where it's a very communal, is meeting your neighbor and yeah. talking to them. Yeah. I mean, it's a it's something that we don't experience at a, at a traditional restaurant. You generally don't want to talk to your neighbor, but in a situation where you're at a tasty menu, it's fun to experience that together. Yeah, and there, there are times when, yes, you want your privacy. You know, um, my spouse got a new job in November and had to move to Portland. Yeah. Uh, we've been together 19 years, and so when I went to visit, we wanted privacy so we could catch up. So you up. could hang out, yeah. So well, I get it when people want that, and we're pretty good about reading who wants us to engage them and who doesn't. Mm-hmm. And I'm also pretty good at reading who just hasn't had enough to drink yet <laughs> to, to start asking the silly questions because that's when it gets fun. I mean, I'm not going to give you the years of research we put into this project in a 90-minute setting. Mm-hmm. But if you ask me the right questions, there are no wrong questions, but if you ask me the right question that triggers an answer that allows me to tell you something really cool, you're going to get the story. Um, and it won't be too long because guess what? I got to cook another course. Right, right. I mean, it's stuff like, I don't know if people saw on social media, we got the seed list inventory from a seed store from 1841. And why was that so exciting to you? Because it's it's so fascinating. You know, people are listening to this. They can probably hear the excitement in yours. But you are lighting up right now. But why was that exciting to you? It's exciting because, one, I didn't know seed stores existed in 1841. <laughs> and two, when the the archivist told me that this existed, I'm like, Oh, so it says carrots and potatoes. You said, no, 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 no. It has the 20 types of carrots. Why is it exciting? Because we're going to now be able to serve food that hasn't been served in possibly 150 years in this area. Wow. Because the time that has gone by, 150, 200 years, there's been a number of things. There's been... um, Foods or let's plants that will get pest and disease and not be able to grow in the area anymore. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, time's gone by and we have new knowledge. Maybe we can grow it. And there's things that just aren't in fashion. Think about maybe a watermelon that has too many seeds. But what if that watermelon that has too many seeds has this really amazing, unique flavor that we don't get in watermelons anymore? Think about how few. Um, different produce items are at the grocery store, let alone the farmer's market. How many different carrots are there? Come on. This list, I've got 95 different plants. You don't have 95 different plants at the grocery store. Right. And so we're now working with the seed banks around the country to see of the 25 of those 95 that aren't readily available, who has those in the banks. And how you can get them. And I've got local farmers who are already saying, 
You just tell us, get us the seeds and we'll grow it for you. We're gonna bring back plants that this area hasn't seen in a long time. That's biodiversity, it's flavor diversity. And you know what? No one else has done this in the country as far as I know. And that's cool. It's, you I'm can, not gonna make you, you bleep me. It's cool, it's <laughs> neato stuff. <laughs> That's amazing. Well, and that's like, a, you know, one of the cool things where you're really taking this, it's beyond a restaurant. There is a, you know, a, a stance that you're taking in terms of bringing that back. And as we were just talking about in terms of food waste, you guys have really implemented incredible policies to to really kind of meet zero waste goals. Talk about that to me. Yeah, the, the food waste thing, you know, I'm going to take the jaded perspective here at the open and just say, as a business owner, why would I want waste? That's money that's lost. Mm -hmm. uh, either because I've spent too much on ingredients that aren't being consumed or we're not efficiently using them. The more um, altruistic response is, we know this is a major, major issue around the country. Much more so the US than any other country because we're so, um, so wealthy, not just money, but in all resources, that we're willing to, Every night at your own home, how much food goes in the trash? Too much. How much goes in that garbage disposal? And I think most listeners will say, oh, well, you know, it may be one bite left in my carrots. I'm not talking about the carrots. We're mm -hmm. going to eat those. I'm talking about the peelings of the carrots, the tops of the carrots. All that stuff that gets composted, thrown away, is that potential food? Let's switch our brains and say, maybe it's not food. Maybe it's ingredient, maybe mm -hmm. it's flavor. I mean, this goes back to that word I used before, koji. We do a lot with koji because it, it can break down plants in ways that otherwise you can't control. And so these things like miso that we talk about, we have that acorn miso. Well, we also have a sweet potato. It's actually, a, technically it's an amino acid for any of the <laughs> academic people out there, but we call it a sweet potato miso. It's all the peelings and scraps of sweet potatoes that were left over from some projects we were doing. I wanted a cocktail that was that was had at its core a roasted sweet potato juice. Mm. Okay, so I I roast the sweet potato. I boil it in some water very gently to extract that flavor. We ran that water through a centrifuge to clear it, and then I send it to the bar to make a drink. Okay, cool. And the drink was delicious. I don't even remember what it was anymore. I still have those sweet potatoes, right? And okay. I still have the peels. Mm -hmm. So I do a second boiling. Now this time, after I do the second boiling, I boil it down so the natural sugars that are still in there become a syrup or a molasses. Okay, that's nice. We send that to the bar. We still have those potatoes. <laughs> and so we take those potatoes and the peels and we grind them up. We put a bunch of salt on them. And use that salt to start breaking them down, and that's the process that ultimately leads to a miso. That miso is now nine months old. We use that in all sorts of different dishes as a flavoring. It's like adding a bouillon cube because it's so concentrated. Concentrated, yeah. Um, but the salt has preserved it, but also broken it down. We do that with a ton of things. The only things that we've struggled with so far are corn husks. Okay. And people are like, oh, well, you can do tamales. You can, we did all that stuff. <laughs> there's, there's still a lot of corn husk and the corn threads. You know, we went, there's just so much. Um, we struggled with those. That's when our food waste was going from five gallons a week, which ask any chef. They do a 50 gallon tub a day, probably. Wow. Five gallons a week to 15 gallons a week. Was with the corn husk. Now we've come back down to the seven, five, seven, ten range. Um, 
The other one that has been really tricky is uh, pumpkin husk, pumpkin okay. peel. That one's tough. We're still researching how to use that. Um, but when I talk about that waste, that still is going to a compost. Right. To us, compost is failure. Why is that? Because we haven't worked hard enough yet to figure out how to use it, to make it consumable. Um, and consuming, sometimes it's not a food again. It's an ingredient. Sometimes it's a flavor. Sometimes it's a texture. Sometimes it's a smell. You know, there are things like, this is where I get to the point of obsession. And <laughs> I, I even laugh at myself. So I go and forage persimmons. Okay. The way I forage persimmons is I wait till after the first frost at least. And then I have an extendable pole, like one of those paint roller mm -hmm. poles. And I buy the hook for the paint roller. And I use that to shake the branches of the persimmon tree gently because I don't want to harm the tree. I am that flaky sometimes. Anyway, I have tarps on the ground. All the persimmons drop. Well, sometimes twigs and branches drop with it. I try not to, but it happens. This is how obsessive I, I I'm ridiculous. You, I know I'm ridiculous. <laughs> you can laugh at me. So I take those you twigs. You care, though. And I do care. I mean, it's, it's, everything has value, not just financial, but ethical, philosophic value. So anyway, I get all these twigs and branches. I bring them back. I dehydrate them, and we use those to smoke things. So for quite a while, I was doing persimmon smoke, blah, 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 you know, and, and uh yeah. So it's just another way that you really are thinking consciously about every single piece of what comes in and goes out of the restaurant. Yes, and so my job as the chef, because the staff, they have work to get done, and they're very aware of this. My job is to look in that compost bucket, look in that trash can, what's sneaking in there, and is it a one-time thing, or is it something that we need to dig a little deeper. Is there something that the home cook who's listening to this, who says, okay, well, I'm not going to go as extreme as that, but maybe I do want to control a little bit more of that waste. Are there things that are, are simple that they could do with those carrot peels, those carrot tops that they can incorporate into their kitchen? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, so first I'm, I'm going to plug a book that I have no connection to, but it's called Waste Not, and it's by the James Beard Foundation. And that book uh, was the first one I know of that took a serious look at contemporary food using food waste. And it's written for the home cook. It's not intended for the chef. And there's some really cool recipes in there, and they're all very doable. One of the ones that I saw in there that I didn't know about, because, you know, I do local food, so I don't have banana peels. They said, you can make banana bread with banana peels. Thought, really? <laughs> that sounds disgusting, but it gives a technique <laughs> on how to do that huh. and it makes complete sense because that's something that everyone tosses everyone out do it. yeah well at that point you could do a banana pancake mm. you know so i think that book's the easiest way to go because the home cook is not going to want to do the misos the amino acids right. that kind of stuff um, but certainly just start being aware of what's going in your trash are you making too much food or are you making the wrong food? Mm. Um, there, the typical thought on tasting menus, because I think a lot of chefs have made mistakes over the years, mm. is it's not enough food. There are places in town that you can go out and spend 100 bucks and leave hungry. You'll have to go to White Castle afterwards. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't need to name names. We all right. know them. Um, I hope no one ever says that of our restaurant because over the years I've worked really hard to watch like I don't want you bloated but you sh certainly should not be hungry and um, 
And I think that's sort of a cultural thing that we yeah. have here is that idea of, I mean, when you go to a restaurant and your plate is the size of a serving container, yeah. um, I think that's something that we as Americans have gotten used to. And so when you think of the idea of a tiny little plate, you're thinking, well, I'm surely going to be starved after this. Yeah. And that's, a, I think, something we all have to sort of change in our minds. Yeah, I'm working on a dish right now. Uh, I want to do a play on a, the loaded, like the loaded nachos. The, mm. well, I want to do a loaded cornbread. Well, okay, okay that's, that is, right? <laughs> I mean, if you give them a co- good cornbread and the right stuff's on top, and that could be amazing. Um, but it's called loaded, and it comes on a tray. So it's like... I've got to really watch the balance because why do why do properly portioned tasty menus work? Well, you consider the time in between the dishes. Think about it at home when you have something you're just you're hungry and you love it and you scarf it, yeah. and then an hour later you ache because you ate it too fast. Mm-hmm. And and maybe you've never thought about why all that is. It's your body backed up trying to process it. In a properly portioned tasting menu that has proper timing between courses, you get enough. And remember, these are rich, big flavored dishes. And so by the time the next one comes, your body's already started that process. So at the end of the seven, eight, 10, 12, how many courses the chef is doing, you should already be satisfied. Now the problem is, think about um, some foods, I'm thinking of Chinese food because of rice. Mm-hmm. You think you're full, but then an hour later you're hungry. Because well, simple carbs and things like yeah, that. Yeah, things break down. So if, if the quantity is not right to go with the timing, then you've left someone to be hungry an hour later. That's a failure. It's an art. With so many different dishes that you've made, is it even possible to think of one that's been a favorite? <laughs> well... And dishes don't stick around here long. Um, But I can tell you, there's one that's had probably the single biggest reaction from the crowd. And this is the curse of my food, is describing it to people when they don't have the food in front of them and in their mouth, because Mm -hmm. it's not going to sound like much. Um, We have these dishes made by a local artist, Vincent Stemmler. Uh, He's an art student at SIUE, really amazing artist. Um, on Instagram, I think he's Vincent Thistlethorn. Okay, we'll you tag can, that. Yeah, you can find him. And he created these little acorn cups for me. Yeah. And so the cup inspired me to create a dish where I made a little beignet or a donut out of acorn flour. And on the bottom of the dish, I swiped, um, it's called pecan praline. So we had sweet baby pecans. It's the only pecan native to Missouri. Toast it, candy it, it becomes pecan butter. So peanut butter, but pecan butter. But it's toasted and candied. So that's mm. on the bottom of the bowl. And then I made, I put a few drops of um, black walnut brine. Mm. See, that means nothing to you. Right. But let me tell you, it's really good. <laughs> you brine black walnuts. Um, you, you pickle black walnuts. And then you have the brine. Okay. And so I put that in. Uh, but think uh, kind of acidic, kind of bitter. But we didn't use much of it. On the bottom, it's sweet and toasty. Then I do um, a white chocolate potato mousse. Okay, that means nothing to you. No, it doesn't, but it it's, sounds so intriguing. It's sweet, but it's not too sweet because of the potatoes, but it's, it's um, the texture of it. It's ethereal with substance. I don't know. It's, it's a little cloud of goodness. So a bunch of that. And then I put the donut, which we freshly fried there, and I take the donut and I dip it in a glaze. The glaze is nocino. Nocino is a black walnut liqueur with sugar. I dip that in the nocino, put it on top, and then we um, 
had taken. And so people are like, what is this? I don't even want that. So <laughs> we took um, some cabbage leaves, brined it in the black walnut uh, vinegar again, mm-hmm. or the brine, and then we dehydrated them so they're crispy. We put some of those on top of everything because I always like an element of surprise or discovery in my food. So that's on top. Then we blow that persimmon wood smoke in, put the lid of the acorn onto the cup, give it to the customer. They open the lid. The smoke explodes. All they see is those leaves. They put their spoon in it. All of a sudden, oh my goodness, here's the donut. Here's this goo. Here's all these other layers. It's hot and cold, smoky. It's sweet and salty. It's, It's gooey and crunchy. It's everything in one bite. It was the first breakout hit that we had. Um, and I don't like sticking on dishes too long, but I think we ran that maybe even two months, which is in our world's a long, long So now time. you've described this incredible thing to people. You can't have it. You can't have it. <laughs> <laughs> you've got to come up with something new that is equally exciting and delicious. We have. My sous chef, man, he made a, a cabbage dish. Like who's who is, there's no one out there saying, oh, I want the best cabbage dish. No, you know, cabbage is on the, on the side, but he did a uh, sassafras-infused butter, sous-vide cooked cabbage, finished on the grill. So it's got the char, it's got sassafras, it's got butter, it's tender, but not mushy, because cabbage oftentimes is either crisp or mushy. And then he did, um, we make our own sauerkraut, of course, that's very traditional for the Ozarks, but he, um, did a cream of sauerkraut, like cream corn, cream okay. sauerkraut. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, something we found in the research. And uh, a celery leaf oil. That one, man, people loved it. And I, I don't, when I do things, it's like, I serve you food you've never experienced. So you don't have a reference point. When he does it, he's much more traditionally trained. And so his technique is always impeccable and better than mine. Uh, that's not me just blowing smoke. I mean, he's, he's from, he graduated Le Cordon Bleu, so he's just an amazing chef. And so that one, it's like people say, oh, cabbage, I'm a, I can wrap Understand my head around that. cabbage, right. But then they like, get blown away by it. And that's when it's like, okay, I can blow away because you've not had this before. He blows your way because you know what it is. You probably even think you can make it, but you can't make it as good as him. Which is why people have got to come check it out. Yeah. Even if they've been in the past, clearly a lot of new things well, coming along. I, I look back at the reviews that the different reviewers did, and I'm like, oh, yeah, that was cute. <laughs> yeah, we were okay back then. We know so much more now. And, you know, because we're rooted in this research, it's like, it, it's just a more authentic, solid experience now. We're Our feet are solid on the ground, whereas before we were running, just trying to keep up. Um, we, we did a brand new menu just this week, hundred percent from start to finish brand new. We normally don't do that. We normally change a course here or there. Mm-hmm. And the first night was a little rough and now we're like, no problem. <laughs> Second night we, we were in there tweaking things by the third night. It was solid. And the, and we could tell by the customers, um, Sunday night was our third night. Sundays are normally a little quieter around here mm-hmm. and people were, were just loving the food which is great because that builds us up and then our interaction with the customers was responding uh, to correspond with how they were. It, it was fun. is located in Midtown in the Grand Center Arts District. Next door is the High Low, a literary cafe from the Cranzburg Arts Foundation serving up blueprint coffee and to die for biscuits from Rob Connolly. 
We hope you connect with us for behind the scenes from the podcast as well as the latest in restaurant news around St. Louis. You can find us on Instagram and on Facebook at Meet St. Louis Podcasts. This episode was produced and edited by JJ Bailey.